Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. At this point, it's our practice to go around the room and introduce ourselves to each other. I'm Marvin Snow. I'm Charlie. I'm Peter. I'm David. I'm Tom. I'm Howard. Bill. <laughs> My name is Larry Legray. My name is Rich. I'm Tom. Michael. Paul. My name is Tony. Peter. My name is also Peter. Jack. My name is Jerry. Richard. I'm Bill. Peter. Flint. I'm Tom. I'm Bob. I'm Larry Rich. Jason. Jim. Doug. David Axel. My name is Tate Lilia. My name is Tom. Chris. Kevin. Harley. Um, Robert. George. So is that? Michael. My name is Kevin. Anthony. I'm Lenny. Anyone else? Anyone here for the first time or returning after a long absence? Yes, could you introduce yourselves one more time? Yes. <laughs> Kevin. Michael. Ben. Ben. And Bob. And Bob. Well, welcome. Uh, the longtime members will be happy to uh, chat with you uh, at the social tap hour in the meantime and uh, give you, uh, answer as many questions as you can. So please uh, stay and ask and socialize a little bit with everyone. The original speaker for today, Frank, and excuse my pronunciation here, but Ostaski. 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 Thank you. He's, he's recovering from an illness and will not be able to speak this Sunday. Uh, we noted, noticed him in the calendar, so I want to be aware. Uh, he will be rescheduled at another time, uh, but as a tribute to our programming committee, the skill with which they can switch speakers. And to the depth of the Sangha itself, we have uh, David Lewis to speak to us today. Uh, David has been a practicing Buddhist for over 30 years. He is a member of GBF and a regular participant in our Sangha. At the height of the AIDS epidemic, David ran a meditation group for people living with HIV at the Zen Hospice Project and managed several annual retreats at the Esalen Institute. In 2008, he joined the Spirit Rock Meditation Center's dedicated practitioner program, a two-year program of Buddhist study and practice. David is highly regarded in our community, and we are very pleased to have him speak to us this morning. David. Thank you. Good morning. Um, <clears throat> Howard Cohn, who's one of my teachers, um, asked me to prepare a 
talk for his um, song. That's a song that means Tuesday nights. <clears throat> and I started working on it about a month ago. And like talks tend to, at least the way I do them, they get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until I realize you know, this is more than one talk and then it splits off into three talks. So I've been having kind of a great time in the last six weeks or so working with this series of talks about practice, you know, kind of from the suttas. And um, you're not getting any of them. <laughs> Maybe later. <laughs> um, because, because Frank's not here, Frank Kostoseski. Frank is also one of my teachers, and um, I just love the man to death. In fact, I don't know how many of you know him or have, have sat with him, but he's, he's kind of cute. A lot of gay men and even more straight women have developed crushes on him. <laughs> Big, tall guy, you know, maybe six foot four with curly blonde hair. Very handsome. He used to be a rock promoter before he kind of got into Buddhism. Um, Frank's a Vipassana practitioner, but he is probably best known for having founded the Zen Hassas Project, which um, started out as kind of a branch of the Zen Center. Um, but around the time it was founded, and I can't remember if this was concurrent with the beginning of the AIDS epidemic or if it was just coincidence, he really became the first AIDS hospice in San Francisco. And Frank, for me, besides being a great teacher, a great Vipassana teacher, is, um, I think, a hero of the AIDS epidemic. So, um, today I want to talk a little bit about Frank, and to honor him, a little bit about the epidemic. Frank, by the way, the reason he's not here is because he was teaching a couple of weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago now, he was teaching a retreat of doctors and nurses on um, end-of-life issues. He, he currently runs uh, uh, a nonprofit called the Meta Institute out of um, Marin. He was teaching a, a retreat of doctors and nurses and had a series of heart attacks right in the middle of the retreat. <coughs> Didn't know what was happening, went on teaching and just... You know, fortunately, at some point, somebody said, you better get this checked out. And he did, and he had triple bypass surgery within a day or two. And he's doing just fine, um, as far as I know. He's in recovery and doing just fine, and has a website and is posting a, a blog on it. So um, if I refer to Frank in the past tense, it's because I'm talking about the 90s and... Um, not because I have uh, unfortunate expectations of Frank's health. I think he's going to do just fine. But he's very much in my heart, and, and I wanted to do a talk that was that honored him and honored his work. So as I said, I, I think of him as a hero of the AIDS epidemic because he was there when a lot of people weren't. Um, and he took care of an awful lot of gay men, and, and women too, but an awful lot of gay men during the um, years of the AIDS epidemic. He, uh, Frank held P PWAs, literally held them. 
including a couple of my friends, through diarrhea, through dementia, and through death. He not only ran the Zen Hospice Project as an AIDS hospice that welcomed everybody, including the indigent, but he sponsored a sitting group at the Zen Hospice Project for people with life-threatening illnesses, not just AIDS, but any life-threatening illness, anybody dealing with potential life, end-of-life um, issues. Um, and then later on, he uh, co-sponsored, along with the Esalen Institute, a uh, series of meditation retreats for people that were living with, um, living with AIDS during the 90s. And I was kind of his, um, I guess I was his retreat manager for um, a lot of that. And I led the group at Zenosis Project. And it was a very moving, powerful time. So a lot of what I'm going to be talking about this morning is, is my own experience. Frank was a great practice leader because he really knew how to encourage people to practice. And there were people that came to him and came to the hospice at the end of their lives, knowing they didn't have much time left, it's before protease inhibitors, and wanting to practice, wanting to come to the Dharma, which I thought was just a terribly brave thing. Um, and Frank also told stories about people that were long-term practitioners that he knew, that um, particularly one, one good friend who'd been a very long-term Buddhist practitioner, who um, pretty much freaked out when he knew that he didn't have much time left and went back to his Christian um, Baptist, I think, um, upbringing and, and practice. And... Um, Frank supported him in that in the most loving way. It was just it was really um, an amazingly beautiful thing to see. It, to see. But death and, and thoughts of death bring on uh, <coughs> is fire for spirituality. It, it's motivation. And Frank was there for that as well, for an awful lot of people, and continues to be. So one of the things um, I remember hearing Frank say after protease inhibitors came along and all of a sudden, almost overnight, I'm sure many of you remember, a lot less people were dying of AIDS. It was just a remarkable thing and nobody, we, we, we couldn't quite believe it at the beginning and then as time went on, we, it seemed to be true, less people were dying. And people were kind of going off into their own lives, and the epidemic didn't seem quite so demanding. Everybody, you know, recognized that AIDS was still with us, and there were still people with AIDS, and the epidemic wasn't over. But the really scary part seemed to be over, and people kind of withdrew from. I'm going to be talking about the the, the engagement that happened during the, the height of the epidemic in the 90s. And went off into their own lives, and Frank and I were talking about that one day. Um, how there didn't seem to be as much energy around the epidemic, and Frank said, "You know, when I when I walk around the Castro nowadays, I see um, I see some walking ghosts." And he said, "It's almost like it's almost like an awful lot of people have post traumatic stress syndrome syndrome from the epidemic, PTSD." And he just kind of left it at that. And, but that comment stuck in my head. 
So when um, originally um, Jerry Jones, a member of the program committee, asked me if I had any ideas for someone to come speak to the group, and I thought of Frank amongst other people, and I gave Frank a call and asked him if he'd be interested in um, speaking to the group, and he said, "Well, what would you like to what would you like me to speak about?" And I remembered this comment he made about PTSD, and I said, "You know, I've always wanted to hear you talk more about that." And Frank said, no, I think that's your topic. He says, you talk about that. He said, I'll talk about something else. And then I kind of, you know, let that go and forgot about it. And then Frank had his heart attack, and Jerry asked me if I would speak today. And um, I thought, okay, well, I have to talk about it. And I think, you know, I haven't checked it out with him, but I think maybe one of the reasons Frank asked me to talk about that is because I was one of those guys, and maybe still am. Um, and the reason I have come to that conclusion is because um, I recently had, some of you might have been here for my uh, Dharma Duo talk, and some of you might know me anyway. But I, uh, my partner died about two years ago, quite suddenly of a heart attack. And I was in a position in my life then where I could quit my job and I just gave myself over to grief for about a year. I just gave myself over to grief in a way that I've never done before in my life. And one of the things that came up for me while I was grieving was all my friends, and loved ones and some people that I hardly knew that died during the AIDS epidemic that I never had time to grieve for. <clears throat> and I'll, I'm going to talk about that in a minute, why that was. But first I want to address Okay, why are we talking about the past when, as Buddhists, we're told to live in the moment? And I think it's because of karma. I think it's important. Some of us are sitting here today because of the epidemic. Something changed in our lives. Our spirituality got, got um, encouraged then. Karma is cause and effect, and the AIDS epidemic had a tremendous effect on our community. It was a cause, and it had its effect, and it had its results. And you might not have been here. You might not have been in San Francisco, or you, you might have been too young, but you're still living with the effects of it. And for me right now, it's important to just take a moment and acknowledge those effects, how the epidemic changed our world and changed our lives. My father was um, of the World War II generation. He served in the war. The generation that Tom broke on is book called The Greatest Generation. And I always thought it was kind of odd when I heard my father talk about um, the war. My parents actually were raised during the Depression, talk about the Depression talk about the war, which were, you know, awful times, and there was a lot of hardship. But there was always a little bit of nostalgia, and a little bit of, boy, those were the good old days, you know. We, you know, had to grow a garden in the backyard and grow our own food, and those were the good old days. 
So they, they were talking about the horror of it, and there was nostalgia there, too. <coughs> so I kind of feel that way about the epidemic, and I feel like in the gay community that the British generation in the gay community were those people that were there serving and dying and taking care of people and being bodhisattvas during the heart of the epidemic. That's not to discount the importance of those drag queens at Stonewall who <coughs> you know, are heroes to me too. But my real heroes are the people that quietly serve, people like Frank quietly served during the years of the AIDS epidemic. And the other reason we need to look back and we need to remember is because, well, in, in uh, the program I'm currently in, enrolled in at um, Spirit Rock, we're currently studying the Satipatthana Sutta. And the, the Satipatthana Sutta are the Buddha's teachings around meditation, how to meditation, and the, how to meditate, and the thing, the objects of meditation, which are incredibly numerous. I'd love to talk about that sometime. But one of the things I learned is that the word sati in Pali, which I've always known to mean mindfulness, also has the same root as memory. And sati is one of the most important words, the most important concepts in all of the Pali language and, 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 and Vipassana Buddhism. Sati is the practice of mindfulness. Satipatthana is the practice of mindfulness. And I only just learned in the last week, reading a commentary on, on that sutta, on that teaching, that sati also means memory. And the way, one of the ways that I've interpreted that is memory is important because, for instance, if we're dealing with a troublesome emotion, say anger, and it's it's a hindrance because it's keeping us from being in the moment, keeping us from being aware and awake. The way we deal with it in Vipassana is we don't turn away from it and we don't bury it, we face it and we explore it and we become intimate with our anger. We pay attention to how that feels in our body so that we can remember it, memory, so we can remember it. And what happens over time, if we practice with that, that's part of our practice, is becoming intimate with everything that comes up, even our hindrances, even the scary stuff. What happens over time is as we pay attention to our anger, or whatever it is, I'm, I'm going to use anger, it's a big one for me, we, we learn how that feels in our body. And for me, it's, it's heat it generates heat, it generates energy, it feels kind of good, I kind of like it sometimes. Um, but it comes up, you know, at the most unwelcome times, it comes up when I'm reading the paper in the morning and I start grinding my teeth about what the administration's doing and not doing, and, and I feel this heat and I feel this energy. And I've practiced with it enough now that most of the times when I feel the heat and the energy now, because I remember it, I recognize that, I feel the heat and energy, I think, oh, there's anger. Buddha would say, oh, there you are, Mara. <laughs> oh, there you are, anger. And it becomes, it's, it's not about the subject, it's not about the object, 
It's not about what I'm reading in the paper. It's not about George Bush. It's about my anger arising. And I recognize that, and I remember it. And I can say, there you are, Mara, and put it aside. So, to kind of get back to where I was, I think part of the value of remembering and becoming intimate with our experience of the AIDS epidemic, for those of us that had an experience of it, we need to remember that so that we recognize it. And we, know, we need to know what that feels like, and we need to not be containing it. So the, the epidemic, from my perception, and from this PTSD theory, was really like a war. It was a war on AIDS, it was a war on illness, and our city was a bat battlefield in Los Angeles and New York, and little burbs across the country where people were all alone. <clears throat> we lost comrades, just like in a war. There was fear, there was close calls, there were heroes, there were deserters. There was an enemy to fight. It might have been the virus, it might have been the healthcare system for some reason. <coughs> might have been our society in general. I've always thought that what was really scary about AIDS, you might remember that you know the height of the AIDS epidemic was during the Reagan administration and Ronald Reagan would not use the word or address the issue until the very end. But I always thought what was really frightening about AIDS to America and Americans is it dealt with our two biggest taboos in our society, sex and death. And the two of them together was just too much for people to handle. The AIDS epidemic caused a lot of stress in our community and a lot of stress in society in general. A lot of people just couldn't deal with it. There were horror stories, horror stories. A, a dear, dear friend of mine had a, a, who had AIDS and, and died in about 93 had a roommate who was his best friend in the world. And they just loved each other beyond words. And she couldn't deal with it. She couldn't go to the hospital. She couldn't visit him. She couldn't be, sit, beside his, sit beside his bed. Some families couldn't deal with it and had the same reaction. Some families wouldn't deal with lovers, wouldn't deal with partners. One of the things I learned um, back then is that there was usually a pretty good reason why people had these aversions, and it was aversion. A childhood fear of hospitals, somebody might have lost a father or a brother early on in life and just had shut themselves off to the possibility of losing someone. So, um, it was pretty easy for me and not as easy for some other people to be forgiving about people that, that couldn't be there. But I know from my experience with this one particular woman and a number of other people that that caused a tremendous amount of suffering for them um, later in life. Guilt. 
Another aspect of the AIDS epidemic, um, well, one I just talked about, death, um, also has an important Dharma lesson. Um, another aspect of the Satipatthana Sutta, um, or one of the things that the Buddha instructs us to uh, meditate on, or gives us as, as a potential meditation object, is, um, is the human form as a, a dying body. And I suppose most of you probably know that one of the assignments that the Buddha made and Southeast Asian meditation teachers and Tibetans is to go sit in the charnel ground, go sit in the cemetery and reflect on the fact that you're going, that's where we're all going to end up. And that is a motivation for spirituality, for awakening in this lifetime. I have a, a quote I want to toss in here. The Buddha recommended that every person should remember every single day that we are not here forever. It is a guest performance, which can be finished any time. We don't know when. We have no idea. We always think that we may have 75 or 80 years, but who knows? If we remember our vulnerability every single day, our lives will be imbued with the understanding that each moment counts and we will not be so concerned with the future. Now is the time to grow on the spiritual path. If we remember that, we will also have a different relationship to the people around us. They too can die at any moment. And we certainly wouldn't like that to happen at a time when we are not loving towards them. When we remember that, our practice connects us to this moment and meditation improves because there is urgency behind it. We need to act now. We can only watch this one breath, not the next one. It's from Ayak Kema. So I think um, maybe for some of us Buddhists, only you can speak for yourselves, there was maybe a little bit more immediacy towards our practice at a time when so many people were dying around us and maybe we were fearing for our own deaths or our own longevity. It was a reminder. So I, I think that's another aspect of the AIDS epidemic that was maybe different then than it is now. Another aspect of the AIDS epidemic that um, I found to be interesting was um, the level of delusion that arose. There are some weird beliefs and cures out there. I don't know if you remember. Um, people came up with the most bizarre stuff, belief systems, and it was a great example of uh, the, the, the Buddhist concept of delusion. A friend of mine, when I commented on this years ago in the 90s, um, a, a wise, young, punker, straight girl friend of mine, said, oh yeah, she said, read Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year, which I did. Um, and Daniel Defoe had actually lived right around the time of the bubonic plague in London and wrote about it. He wrote a book called The Journal of the Plague Year. And it was an eye-opening book to read during the AIDS epidemic because it was the same stuff all over again. People were coming up with wacky folk cures that, um, and, and belief systems about, you know, if I kept the window shut at night or if I drank water that was colored with blue food coloring or if I you know, 
change my underwear only three days, you know, I wouldn't get the bubonic plague. So delusion was another aspect, and the, the third, you can tell I'm going through the, the, the roots of suffering, we've talked about aversion, delusion, now I'm going to talk about desire, it's desire. desire for things to be different and this being the gay community and the AIDS epidemic coming not too long and being at least partly a result of gay liberation there was what was happening with sex that was going on in the, during the AIDS epidemic there was a lot of fear there was a lot of just wanting to be just wanting to connect because life was so scary there was a lot of, at least in my experience, in my world, and I was a caregiver and I was kind of hanging on a lot of caregivers, there's a lot of people that just wanted to be held. They just wanted some comfort, especially those who were given comfort. Just wanted some comfort. And, you know, I ended up sleeping with a few people just because you know, I wanted to be held and they wanted to be held. And it was kind of a beautiful thing. And I kind of miss that. You know, I don't know how to go about getting that nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> so those are the roots of suffering that, for me, come up when I think about the AIDS epidemic. But the Brahma Viharas were there also. The Brahma Viharas were the sublime states, compassion, sympathetic joy. There was a lot of service going on. Um, Bill Weber talked about this a couple of weeks ago, about the, the blessings of service. And during the epidemic, I think it wasn't so much people saying, okay, you know, I, I need to do my part, or, or um, I, I want to be a better person, or I've got some time to volunteer. You did it because somebody desperately needed it. Very often it was somebody you didn't know, or, or only marginally knew. I can't tell you the number of living rooms and houses I ended up in, you know, doing my stint of sitting by the bedside of somebody that I really hardly knew. And then I got to know all the friends, the shift before me and the shift after me and the, the home nurse. And there was this phenomenal community, sense of community, a community of caregivers, a community of people that um, were willing to put themselves out for their friends, their loved ones, and, and sometimes for people that they hardly knew. Um, and Bill talked about that too. He mentioned uh, the tremendous sense of community that he sensed during the AIDS epidemic that he didn't sense so much now. There were bodhisattvas, there were hero, heroes and heroines, um, true bodhisattvas, all over the streets of San Francisco. And I tried to be one of them because I was a good Buddhist, but I discovered that um, there are dangers to being a bodhisattva. Sometimes when you put yourself out that much taking care of other people, you forget to take care of yourself. So I find this dichotomy, and it's not a dichotomy because the Buddhists taught both things. The Buddhists taught what the, the Theravada tradition emphasizes to about your own awakening, personal awakening. And the Buddhists also taught about bodhisattvas, about the importance of serving other people. 
I think we need to do both. But during the AIDS epidemic, I think there were a lot of bodhisattvas out there that were putting themselves out so much for other people that they weren't taking very good care of themselves. And some of us are just kind of discovering the after effects, the karma of that. Now, today. Because what was happening is people were dying so fast that we didn't have time to grieve. And we repressed our emotions. At least I did, very often. You know, there was always somebody else to take care of, so I couldn't give myself over to grief in the way that I did when my partner died two years ago. And I think that's where some of that PTSD comes from, if it's fair to call it that. I think there's a lot of um, ungrieved grief and emotions that never got dealt with that come up now when we have sadness, when we have grief, um, or maybe it's just there quietly in the background. I have another quote that I'd like to share. And this is, um, this quote is really mostly about um, it's a prayer actually, but it's mostly about forgiving our, our people that have done us ill. But it's also about learning from, learning lessons from um, suffering. This is an actual prayer that was found, written on a piece of paper, and it was on the body of a dead child in the Ravensbrück concentration camp after World War II. A soldier found this prayer. O Lord, remember not only the men and women of goodwill, but also those of ill will. But do not remember only the suffering they have inflicted on us. <clears throat> Remember, too, the fruits we brought forth thanks to the suffering, our comradeship, our loyalty, our humility, our courage, our generosity, the greatness of heart which has grown out of all of this. And when they come to judgment, let all the fruits which we have borne be their forgiveness. So, I don't know, what came up for me was that just reminded me of everything I've been trying to say about the AIDS epidemic. The fruits of the suffering, our comradeship, our loyalty, our humility, our courage, our generosity, the greatness of heart which has grown out of all of this. So what I'd like to do um, I don't think we have time to do it. I was hoping to break us up because I've talked too much. I was hoping to break us up into small groups and have people talk a little bit about their experience. Your experience. Um, but if I may, and if you'll indulge me and this gets all of you off the hook that don't have anything to say or don't want to talk this morning, <laughs> is just open it up to the floor. And I'd kind of like to hear some of your reactions. And my question is, what does the epidemic mean to you? 
or what's the aftermath of the epidemic for you? It might be about your role in the epidemic or not lack of one, your friends, your losses, your community, your, spir your spirituality. But if um, what I've been talking about lit any candles for you, um, I'd very much like to hear your feedback and I hope others would too. Please. Um, it's really a little bit of a remedy. Um, my experience was very similar experience as I'm sure many other people know more. I found myself at a place sometime in the mid-90s where I realized that I'd lost hope. And not because there wasn't hope about HIV, but because um, the accumulated effects of, of death after death after death had just stripped me of any sense of wanting to go on. And um, a friend of mine said, oh, this, that's not good. <laughs> uh, you need to talk with somebody about it. So I went to a therapist who recommended that I write letters to the people who'd gone and finish things. And it was a, uh, uh, had a profound effect on my life. Thank you. I do that too. I, I talk to them. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> I've had a very interesting double experience today with your in that in my meditation, <clears throat> out of nowhere, a play that I had written in 1989 and 90 called Air Out, which was written when I was on Long Island, and it was <clears throat> it was inspired by the fact that I lived next door and didn't know it to two men who had died, and we didn't find out until the, the landlord who owned all of our property said that the men commit suicide next door by running a vacuum cleaner hose from the car into the bedroom window, and that his lover had died earlier of AIDS. And we were this little <clears throat> group of transients that were, I was in college at the time, we were living around. No one even knew who they were. And so I wrote this play about how connected we are despite the fact that we don't um, you know on the surface that we're connected. So anyway, come up in meditation today, this play, and I said, why is this play coming up from 20 years ago out of nowhere? And I thought, and I, I thought, well, maybe I should bring it out. And part of me said, oh, we've moved on. The gay community doesn't want to hear a play about these two men getting, who pre- Protease inhibitors and who are suffering in their loneliness. They want positive images now of triumph and this. They're not going to want that. And I try to stuff it down. And then another part of me said, maybe, maybe enough time has passed. Maybe the play was ahead of its time. Maybe there is a reason to bring it out. So anyway, it was just everything you were saying was like this double experience of what's in that play and what you were speaking about. Synchronicity. <laughs> and I think Angels in America is one of the most powerful pieces of theater still that's in the past 20 years. Yes. Um, one of the experiences of um, Plague Years that you spoke to a little bit, not as much, was for me, was the sense that this very intense thing was going on in my world and with my friends. And yet, in the same exact city I was living in, the same exact country, people were going around oblivious to it. And um, 
And I remember specifically, you know, visiting a straight college friend of mine, and I had just come from a memorial service, and the next time I saw her, you know, a month later, I'd come from another memorial service, and the next time I saw her, I'd just come from a visit at the hospital, and she just, and she lives in the city here, and very dear close friend, and she said to me, Rich, you live in a different city than I do. And, um, and I don't know how that, but I know the karma of that is really important for me. I know ACT UP and, and uh, grew up at, from that area of like, you know, we're dying, pay attention. Um, but different than the war, the gener- you know, than the, the greatest generation of Tom Brokaw, there was this isolation and sense of, uh, of, of not being, of invisibility almost that happened as well, which I don't know that I've fully come to terms with. In, in addition to everything else, stuff. Another world. Yeah. As San Francisco often seems to be itself right. sometimes. Right. I, uh, I remember a friend who was, had been very sick and almost died a number of times, and then because of the new drugs, he got much better. And Charles Schwab, his former employer, said, Okay, you're better, come back to work. And he said, Are you out of your mind? I can't go back and work in investments after what I've been through. And and it, I, I realized in my own life, after, I mean, I, I use all of my life dreams as negotiation tools to save people. You know, I put everything on the table, and then they all died anyway. And it was, it's been very hard to continue living without <laughs> motivational, you know, out of core energies from, from dreams. And uh, last night I saw in the Olympics this 41 year old swimmer said, It's never too late to have your dreams come true. And, and I thought, God, maybe I should pull out the play that I wrote about doing body work in a, in a hospice, you know. But we got, I couldn't finish it because I, was, I didn't want to kill them off. I was trying to keep them alive, so I kept. <laughs> See, so it is, I, I totally agree with you. There is levels of trauma and um, <coughs> that, that are very hard to digest. And I, I think we should explore it more. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. I think that's true for everybody in our society, everybody in civilization. We all have stuff that we don't deal with, but that was a deep trauma to our community. I'm uh, somewhat shy to speak because even within this community, I feel uh, somewhat singular and alone at times. I want to thank you so much for your topic, and uh, it's really important to bring up all of this stuff. I'm 55 years old, I've lived here for 30 years, so I've lost many, many people in the epidemic. Um, When I first came, whatever you catch or you have a problem with or whatever I probably had, so I imagine I've probably been affected physically by whatever this all is for almost all those 30 years. And a big deal for me has been uh, staying vital and alive and positive and contributory all those years. And uh, just kind of to add to the mix, uh, I, I have a very unmainstream view of what AIDS is and how it works. And I don't deny that there's been an epidemic, that been people have died all over the place, and I've had my own issues as well. I don't believe in a viral model. And I was particularly affected when you talked about delusion. It's conceivable that the entire mainstream medical model is delusion, you know, and we just build on it and we talk about, you know, I hear, I hear 
statements of what saved people or what didn't or what have you. I've never been on any HIV medications and I'm doing pretty well as far as I can tell. And um, it's, I find, I find the AIDS, the whole AIDS topic to be an extremely difficult one in that uh, for me to hold to my own beliefs and way of doing it, and way of looking at it, while at the same time not wanting to be mean or nasty to anybody that doesn't have the viewpoints that I have, and also to, I, I mean, this is a fantastic holy space to have the opportunity, and you are bringing up the topic, to be able to say all this publicly to this crowd of people, some of whom are very intimate with me and some I don't hardly know, but being a, quote, uh, even the word dissident or whatever is such a funky word, you know, it has so much negativity to it. I, uh, I'm not quite sure what word to use, but um, it's the AIDS epidemic and uh, other health issues for me have afforded me the ability to really see that I'm free in my mind, that I have the ability to believe what I need to believe and to live in the way that I need to live. And I think everybody has that opportunity. I don't see people grabbing it too much. Usually people kind of, it's like, um, I mean, I see it in many, many aspects of the world, and I'll shut up very soon, but um, that there are kind of like um, dominant paradigms, hegemonic kind of thoughts that uh, everybody kind of has to agree, and they oftentimes are found out to be wrong, you know, later on, or <coughs> some people know them to be wrong as it's happening. And um, so I kind of live on this cuspy kind of thing, you know, um, and uh, I'm glad I've, I'm glad I'm able to come out in all the ways one comes out. So I'm coming out in this room as somebody who has uh, different than mainstream views and has been proving it with my way of living it for all these years. So uh, thanks for the opportunity to to talk. And thank you for that. As Ajahn Chah said, maybe you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I like. Yes, thank you so much for your time today. It's very meaningful for all of us, for our culture. I want to, again, thank you for bringing up that issue that that period of time in San Francisco and the whole, and all of our communities, at the time it was just such a uh, powerful thing that was happening so fast, we didn't have time to deal with it, we didn't have time to grieve, it was that multiple events of just taking care of business and surviving. And then after the medicine, like you mentioned, that uh, then we had a break, and it was nice to have a break, and to go on and try and forget that. And I think after this period of time, that now we have the uh, opportunity and the necessity and the requirement to try and uh, integrate all that and talk about these things, to do our artwork, to do our plays, to do our uh, literature, now that we've had perspective um, on how to do it. Uh, and this post-traumatic uh, syndrome thing I really have been sort of tuning into because I've seen that so many people that are survivors, so many unfortunately are not here to, to do it. Uh, I also want to just comment too that, uh, again, being here in San Francisco from the beginning, the one when you first saw the New York Times article, um, that some folks were able to use their spirituality to go through the epidemic and be of service. And on the other hand, 
and some people just did the service and just got in there and then developed their spirituality because of it. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that it was coming. Some people were oblivious to it because of whatever reasons, but were touched and will come out of it with different understandings. So it's just there's so much of a mix, and just uh, uh, thanks again for, for, for bringing us up and for having us remember that we really, I think, we need to document these things, we need to write about them, we need to express them, we need to talk about them, but also to um, integrate that so we can have our uh, remembrance for the present as well. Thank you again. Yes, well, th thank you for the concept of integrating it. I wish I'd come up with that. <laughs> That's perfect. Thank you. Howard? Um, thank you for your reflections and also for stepping in at the last moment to fill the chair and teach us so well from your life experience. I really want to validate what I felt um, was uh, most moving about your story is the fact that you finally chose to give yourself over to the grief. And my question, one of my questions for you is why? I mean, what was happening in your life that you finally made that decision to <coughs> spend a whole year to give yourself over to the grief? And my sense is that uh, what helps me so much about Buddhism is, is the idea of impermanence. Loss is the nature of things. What is here today and what we love and embrace or hate or resist passes. And that grief is just such a such the nature is grief is the nature of practice. You know, hugging and letting go. Being, being in a relationship with grief that's as natural as breathing uh, seems to me to be um, one of my practices that I work with and struggle with every day. I think grief is incredibly powerful and transforming when, when we give ourselves over to it and embrace it. And I just was touched by your practice of compassion with suffering and how transformative that that was for you to hold someone who's who's living with diarrhea and vomiting and nausea and sickness and sleeplessness and weeping and crying and to hold them and embrace them how transformative that practice is you can't go back to work <laughs> your life has changed um, when you give yourself over to those realities Certainly, I've observed that in your testimony in your life. So I want to thank you for that uh, that part of it. So I guess you know why did you make that shift to embrace grief, and, and how do you how do you live with grief today? Well, it was um, <coughs> I didn't have a choice about it this time around. Um, I just adored my partner; we were best friends for twelve years. But I think it was also a side effect of my practice. Is I have been practicing for a Buddhist practice. I've been practicing for a lot of years, and I think I finally got to the point in my life where I was willing to be that vulnerable. I've always been a pretty tough guy, <laughs> especially with my own feelings, and I was willing to be that 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 vulnerable. And 
And more importantly, what I learned from it, it was a phenomenal experience, what I learned from it. The, the, the Buddha said that suffering, which we, you know, gets a bad name in Buddhism. The Buddha said that suffering is a door to the Dharma. And it really reopened the door to the Dharma for me, suffering that much. And what happened in my life, and I'm living with this right now, is I eventually worked through the grief and pretty much got over it. And what I discovered when I came out the other end was my heart was open. I mean, really open, more open than any time since I was probably a three-year-old. And I went to um, a little addendum. I went, and then I'll end. <laughs> I went to my meditation teacher, one of my meditation teachers, and told him, I said, you know, the grief's kind of over. I've been seeing him during this period, and, and I said, but I still cry at the drop of a hat. And he said, what do you cry about? And I said, I cry at happy endings. I cry at sad stories. I cry when somebody says, I love you. I cry at romances. I said, I think there's something wrong with me. <laughs> and he said, you're abiding in the Brahma Viharas. And he says, you're in a state of equanimity. And you don't know it. <laughs> and that comes from an open heart. And for me, my open heart kind of came from really opening myself up to suffering. So, as scary as that seems, I recommend it. <laughs> and in that note, I end. Thank you. Thank you. We need to call for announcements at this point. Uh, do we have a host today? We have a host. My name is Bill. I'm the host today. Um, we've got some cakes and some fruit out there. Please help yourself. Uh, there's also hot water for, and tea bags for tea, which you can also have. And uh, if you use one of the cups, please wash it out before you leave. Um, I'll be coming around with the Donna Bowl and uh, welcome any and all contributions. A suggested donation is 5 to $8. Um, we've got a mailing list and we've also got a directory. And if uh, you want to be on it and you're not already on it, there's uh, pink sign-up sheets just outside there which you can put your information down. And uh, lastly, uh, at about 12.30, as Martin said earlier, uh, a group usually gets together and goes out to lunch and uh, anybody's welcome to join in and if you want to, just uh, be by the door at about 12.30. Uh, same old announcement I'm making. Uh, we're going to have a booth at the Castor Street Fair first Sunday in October. I think it's October 5th. Um, and I, I do need some people to help staff the booth in you know, just you know, an hour. You know. um, so you know, I'm teensy bit nervous because uh, I need more bodies than I have right now. Uh, so if, if you're interested in doing that, and believe me, it's not an arduous thing. It actually can be fun. Uh, please buttonhole me outside and I'll get your name and we'll coordinate it. Uh, and also, we just need stuff that goes, I mean, like a, a, a car table and folding chairs. And if it has, has a few tacos or, or hangings, if you might want to give them maybe a little boosty. Just take care of it. That would be good too. So just, just get me outside and I'll find out the details. Yes, I'm Jerry. I'm your speaker coordinator. And next week, we'll have Jeffrey Schneider from the San Francisco, San Francisco Zen Center. And since David wouldn't talk about his practice, Jeffrey's going to talk about his practice. <laughs> <laughs>
See how synchronicity works? Anyone else? Yeah, Mike. Uh, I'm Michael, I'm your retreat coordinator, and uh, the retreat's coming up in just over a month, uh, September 19th through the 21st, at Vajrapani Institute. Uh, there are registration forms out next to the Donna Bowl. Uh, the <coughs> registration deadline is Monday, September the 8th. There is uh, scholarship money available, so please feel free to ask me any questions you might have. If not, then we should gather in a circle and These are the words of the Buddha, or as Ananda would say, thus I have heard. Male beings everywhere plagued with sufferings of body and mind quickly be freed from their illnesses. May those frightened cease to be afraid, and may those bound be free. May the powerless find power, and may people think of befriending one another. May those who find themselves in trackless, fearful wilderness, the children, the aged, the unprotected, be guarded by beneficent celestials, and may they swiftly attain Buddhahood. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.